Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 116 of VRP Rocks, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now so you don't miss a single episode. They come out each Monday and always feature big-name rock stars that found fame in the 60s, 70s, or 80s. Now, today's guest is a man whose career spans many decades. He's had success as part of a band, success with solo work, and incredible success as a songwriter. I'm talking about Russ Ballard, a name that is not nearly as universally known as it should be, given the incredible back catalogue he can draw upon. He was in the band Argent, with Rod Argent, of course, singing lead vocals on their worldwide hit, Hold Your Head Up, and wrote another song of theirs, God Gave Rock and Roll to You, which was later covered and turned into a hit by Kiss in the early 90s. And speaking of Kiss, he wrote Ace Frehley's biggest solo single, New York Groove. That was one of Russ's, too. After leaving Argent, he released a number of solo records, and some of his songs went on to be huge for Richie Blackmore's band Rainbow, notably Since You've Been Gone and I Surrender, two of the band's biggest charting hits. He also wrote songs that became big hits for America, You Can Do Magic, Santana, Winning, Hot Chocolate Smash Hit, So You Win Again, Agnetha from ABBA had a hit with Can't Shake You Loose, and Frida from ABBA had a hit with I Know There's Something Going On. He wrote and worked for years with Roger Daltrey, had other hits with Night Ranger, John Waite and Bad English, and that's without mentioning his own hits in the 80s, the brilliant song Voices and many others. Honestly, the guy is a legend who deserves so much more credit than he ever got. Now, Russ has been on my list to track down for a long time, and I was delighted when he finally got back to me last year. It took a little while to arrange a chat with him, but it was 100% worth it. His stories are incredible, and I'm looking forward to you hearing them. But quickly, I just want to mention VRP Rocks Radio again. Another week on, listening numbers nearly doubled from the previous week, which is amazing. Early days, of course. I'm not quite at Radio 1 standards yet, but one day if you've not checked it out then please please do you're missing out there's a link in the description to this episode that you can click on and i'll take you straight to it have a good listen 
That is unless you listen on Apple Podcasts. I found out that if you do listen on there, you've then got to hold your finger on the web address or your thumb or whatever, hold it on that address, press copy, and then paste it into a new internet window, and it should take you there. I'm working on new ways for you to listen that will make it easier, but for now, that is the way. Please check it out. Another 50-odd songs added this week, nearly a 1,000 in rotation, so loads of great songs for you to listen to, but it's not the usual stuff. You're not going to get Smoke on the Water or Mr. Blue Sky or Paranoid or Stairway to Heaven. There's lots of great deep cuts and songs from bands that don't get the attention they deserve. So please do listen. It's different from the usual classic rock radio. So please check it out. VRP Rocks Radio. You can also find it with a link on the social media channels. If you go to VRP Rocks on Facebook or Twitter, there is a pinned post at the top of each of the pages. So you'll be able to click on the link from there. Now, speaking of getting the attention they deserve, back to Russ Ballard then. As you'd expect from a man with a back catalogue like his, we talk about a lot of things. He's very open and honest. We talk about his depression that he suffered when he was in Argent and how it affected his songwriting. We talk about the songs for Rainbow, of course, and his interactions with Richie Blackmore, his time with Roger Daltrey, the Kiss Connection and those songs and what he's doing these days as well. There's loads of great stories, as you'd expect. So please do enjoy this one with the wonderful Russ Ballard. Great to be here, Paul. Thank you for inviting me, as they say these days. Indeed. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I'm looking forward to hearing all your stories as well, because you've had a heck of a career, both as an artist and a songwriter as well. And we're going to go through all that. And we'll start a little bit into your career. And we'll start with Rod Argent. We spoke to him recently as well. Obviously, the zombies have broken up at this point, and and he was looking to form a band under his own name, Argent. And and you joined that group. So tell us from that sort of point in time how you came involved in that and and how you came to, to, to Rod's kind of attention. Well, Rod and I we're kind of friends. Uh, we were acquaintances anyway from 1964 because I was with Adam Faith in 63 in the roulettes. So we were sort of doing lots of TVs and things. There were just two TV channels and uh, there were programs like Thank You, Lucky Styles, Ready, Steady, Go. And we used to bump into the zombies occasionally. You know, we sh- I remember sharing a room at uh, Kingsway with the zombies and uh, sharing a dressing room. It was a small, very small uh, sort of place. Uh, and so there were very a few dressing rooms. Everybody crowded into these like three dressing rooms, you know. And um, Rod and I be- sort of became friendly. We always had a chat. And um, I had already admired um, She's Not There, the song that, they, that was a big hit, you know, all over the world, actually. So... I found out that he lived in St. Albans. I lived near Hartford, which is 25 minutes away, you know. So um, we used to play football on a a Thursday night, and they used to come over and play with me and my friends. And uh, so, you know, um, after the roulette split, Adam Faith and the roulettes uh, had a a three-year career together. we decided to go on our own for a time, and then the roulette split. And then the Unit 4 Plus 2, uh, there's a group uh, called Unit 4 Plus 2, made a single called Concrete and Clay, got to number one. And I played on that. I played guitar on that track. Um, and Bob Henry, who was in, in the roulettes with me as well, um, played drums on Concrete and Clay. So we were effectively Unit 4 Plus 2. So uh, so the band had this big hit with Unit 4 Plus 2, but we we didn't join them. That was 1965. 
uh, we didn't join them for three years. Um, the roulette split like late 67. They asked us to join them and go on the road with them. So Bob Henry and I both uh, uh, went on the road with them, toured with them, did a few more records with them. And um, we played, one night we played in Essex, I think a place called Ray, Rayleigh or something like that. And uh, we were doing two 45-minute spots, I remember. And um, after the first 45 minutes, but I'd sung a song in the first one called the song I sang actually in the first set. I wasn't the singer in the band, actually. Tommy Moore was the singer. But mm. they wanted me to sing this particular song, which was uh, called Our Day Will Come, which had been a big hit by Ruby and the Romantics. I sang this song and it, we did it in a kind of progressive way, a bit like Vanilla Fudge. And... Um, I remember, you know, going into the dressing room after 45 minutes and Rod Argent and Chris White turned up. And this was like an hour and a half away from uh, their, their manor. And uh, I said, what are you doing here? You know, they're in the dressing room. I said, oh, we were just passing. So we, we popped in. But I think they were sort of looking to, you know, to see if I would be okay to join the band. Scouting, I was, yeah. I guess it was like... Uh, the Premier League division uh, sort of audition, you know. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I got that was on a Saturday night. On the following Monday, I got a call from Rod. Said, um, "I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm forming a new band. I've been looking for players. I wonder whether you would uh, be interested in being in the band with us. I've got Jim Rodford, uh, the ass Bob. Bob wanted to be in it as well." well Bob did say to me, are you going to be in it? And I said, yeah. So he said, I will as well. So that's how that started. Indeed, indeed. And you also did stuff with Colin as well, didn't you? The lead singer of The Zombies. Yeah, well, we did an album as The Zombies. Because The Zombies, as you said, The Zombies had already split. Yeah. But they were still under contract. So we made, we made an album um, as The Zombies. Colin was the singer. And um, that, I think that came out. Um, I had some good songs on it. Uh, yeah, that was that must have been that must have been um, what, 68, 69, 68. Fantastic, fantastic yeah. stuff. And obviously, you had um, success with with Argent and things like that. And Hold Your Head Up was a huge hit, wasn't it? Top five in the UK and US and Canada. I mean, that was fantastic. But despite that success, you've spoken in the past about how hard you found things kind of at that time period. And you've spoken about the depression and things that you suffered at the time. And, and looking back, how hard was it for you? Because it wasn't the sort of time when men spoke about that or people spoke about anything like that, was it at all? I always did, Paul. I always okay. did. I always talk about it. It never bothered me. It never bothered me to talk about it. And it does help people. I know that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when you think you're going to die every day, you know, <laughs> then you sort of, you don't mind what you say to people, what you, you know, what you actually say or whatever. And uh, it doesn't make any difference. You become stronger once you've had depression. But uh, it was mainly, when I look back now, I was trying to write songs I was trying to be in a band, Argent. Uh, we had a deal where I was writing some songs for the band. Rod was writing songs for the band. Chris White was writing songs for the band. And we were gigging in between. So I 
I'm a lark. I get up very early every day, and I always have done, and I still do. Um, I used to get up. I lived with my mum and dad, like, in 1968, and I used to get up at 8 o'clock, uh, 7 o'clock, and I used to write every day. So I'd write from 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, five, like four or five hours. I'd write. I loved it. So, I mean, I used to do it. But the problem was when Argent were also on the road, they'd turn up after five hours or four or five hours writing. They'd turn up in the car with the driver and I'd jump into the car. Then we'd drive to Manchester, Liverpool, or we'd go to Birmingham, Coventry, Wolverhampton, Aston, anywhere of those places, and we'd do gigs. And so, you know, we'd play uh, Manchester University, Birmingham, or in these sort of university towns. We'd get home at 3 o'clock in the morning, 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> I'd go to bed. I'd be up at 7 o'clock writing, and uh, the same thing would happen the next day, be in the car again. I did that for two years. Basically, it was exhaustion. Yeah. It was... Um, not getting the right food on the road and becoming uh, anemic, uh, exhausted basically, and being dehydrated most of the time. And um, so that's what happens, you know, you become, they used to call it in the media, emotion, becoming emotionally exhausted, I think it used to be called then. Okay. And that's what happened to me. I never cancelled a show. And, you know, but you walk around in a daze, you know, because I never experienced anything like depression before. You know, it was new to me, but it's great coming out of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's so great because you realize you can survive it and you come out the other end. You can come out the other end, you know, just hang in. Sometimes you need medication. Some people don't need medication, but it's good to have medication, get out the other end. Yeah. And then, uh, as I've said before, sky is bluer, trees are greener, and life is life is better. You know, it's uh, wonderful. Yeah, there is always a way, and there's always someone to speak to, and and I'm I'm so glad to hear that you were able to speak about it at the time as well, because it is difficult for anybody. Yeah, it was difficult for men then. Yeah, but I've always been kind of uh, okay with myself. You know, as far as my uh, masculinity is concerned, I'm okay with it. Um, and it's just one of those things, you know, can happen. You read about footballers having depression, cricketers having depression, and, uh, rugby players having depression. Um, and that's okay. That's okay. If you can come out of it, it just it enhances your life. It, it adds to your life, you know. And I think that's the songwriting especially. <laughs> because if you, can, if you can actually identify with this depressive side of yourself, it can, it can turn into some good songs, you know. I wrote, I don't believe in miracles for Colin, not for Colin, but I wrote it for myself because I was, and I explain in that song exactly how I was feeling. When I wrote, I don't believe in miracles, I put my head on the keys and just put my head on the keys and cried, you know. And and then everyone after said, oh, it's a wonderful song. That's an amazing song, amazing song, you know, because I think they feel what went into it. Yeah, absolutely. And I read on your website as well, one of the first songs you wrote when you came out of depression was God Gave Rock and Roll to You. And does that hold a, a dear place in your heart then, given the place that it was written from? Yeah. Yeah. 
it's, that's exactly right. I wrote Don't Believe in Miracles going into it. Yeah. And I was writing other stuff in between, but uh, I wrote God Gave coming out of it nine months later, uh, nine months later, I guess, maybe maybe longer than that, actually. It might be longer than that. Uh, it does hold, it holds um, a place in my heart because um, I think my mother gave me the idea for the title. Because oh, right. she, not for that song. She didn't give me the idea for it, but she used to say that a lot, you know. Oh, God gave him that. Oh, God gave him that. God gave him that talent to do that. I'm talking about other people. Oh, yeah, yeah, but that's God-given, isn't it? That's God-given and that kind of stuff, you know. And I'm thinking, you know, I think myself, God gave rock and roll to you. If, if this energy out there gave anything, everything to the world, which obviously... If it is, I don't know, the universe or whatever, or what entity it is, then that entity also gave rock and roll to us indirectly or directly. Very true, very true. And obviously Kiss later had a, a huge hit with that song as well and, and famously credited themselves as writers of it. I mean, how did you feel about that? I was okay with it. In fact, they changed the first verse, which which did make more sense than mine. I was trying to be funny in mine, to be honest. I was trying to love your friend. You're too young to remember Cliff Richard. Cliff Richard made us a number one single years ago, a number one single called Please Don't Tease. And my lyric went, love your friend, love your neighbor, love your life, love your labor. It's never too late to change your mind. Don't step on snails, don't climb in trees. Love Cliff Richard, but please don't tease. You know that was that was meant to be funny, you know. But uh, Kiss came up with the the first verse of sort of guitars, get guitar, get it in tune, and you go out there and you play, and which made more sense to Americans, obviously. And I was told it was going to be in a movie anyway. Mm -hmm. I was told years before, uh, two years before, that it, they wanted it for Bill and Ted's for a Bill and Ted film. Uh, and I was speaking to somebody in America who said uh, he saw me waiting to go into an office, a record company office. And he said, are you Russ Bellum? I noticed, I recognized this guy. He was the bass player in, 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 um, in Blondie. He was oh. uh, Nigel Harrison. Yes. He was in Blondie, a tall, curly-haired guy. Went, are you Russ Bellum? I said, yeah. He said... I'm collating songs. He said, have you heard of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures? So they made a movie called Excellent Adventures. I said, I've heard of it. He said, well, I was saying, you know, to the director and the people that um, your song, God Gave Rock and Roll to You, would be a great song for this, this part in the film, in the next film. He said, it's perfect. It'd be perfect for, the, for this scene. And then they tried a few different uh, groups playing it, recording it, and uh, it ended up with, with Kiss. And, uh, yeah, that's how they came to uh, change. They had to change the lyric. I could have changed the lyric, but they, had to, they wanted to change the lyric to the first verse, which is fair enough. Absolutely. And by that point, obviously, you had connections with Kiss because of like Ace Frehley and, and Peter Chris as well and things like that. So it was an interesting dynamic that Kiss took that song on as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think Peter Chris did a couple. Uh, Ace Freely did two. He did In the Night, 
and uh, New York Groove. So, I mean, they are, you know, they've, they've been sort of champions for me. There's been, a, there's been a few champions for me out there, to be honest. So they should be. So they should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, folks. Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And you mentioned New York Groove there. I mean, is it the famous story that you wrote that the inspiration came when you were flying on a jet over to New York? Was that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I produced an album for Roger Daltrey in 75, 1975. And uh, that took about six months to do, which was a long time. But, you know, we were getting the songs together and stuff. Roger went on holiday for two months. So <laughs> anyway, when it was finished, we had it marked uh, We we had it mastered in London. It was mastered at the um, the mastering room in in London, and it didn't seem as loud as an album as other albums I was listening to. Then I spoke to a few different people, uh, and they said the best place to to get a rock album mastered is to go to Sterling Sound in New York and get it mastered by Bill Ludwig who's a great master, apparently. So um, I went over there for a couple of days and um, left it. I left it with, with Bill Ludwig. But as I got on, on the plane, I did think of New York Groove. I thought, I'm back in the New York Groove. That's exactly what I thought. And I thought, that's a good title for a song. I wrote it down, put it in a notebook. And, um, yeah, I was when it came to actually writing, and I wrote it in the studio with the band there, you know, and uh, in a demo studio, um, this was a band called Hello, who yeah. recorded it first. They were 16 years old, had all their equipment set up. And they started to play. And I said, look, do this in E. I have a harmonica. It's in B. So this will, it will play in an E. So play this in E. Do you know Bo Diddley? And they kind of said... What, what do you mean, Bo Diddley? Right? Gatch, 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 gatch. And they started to play this. And I said, right. I, I want the feeling of stamp. Ah, 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 ah. That got, that's how it started. And then we just went into it. It took about an hour to write the song. I wrote the lyrics. I'm showing E, B, A. <laughs> Then we needed a bit in the middle, and I said, I don't know what to do here. So I wrote, must be one of the first raps, actually. Here I am again in the city, you know, with a fistful of dollars. And baby, you better believe I'm back. Uh, back in the New York groove. And, um, yeah, that's how it came about. And I think, you know, being very quick tune and being a little bit inspired, it did have a, an energy to it, I think. 
And when was the first that you heard that, that Ace was going to release it? Because obviously he put it on his his solo record when the, the four guys went and did their solo things, didn't they? And it became a big hit for him. Yeah, they all did, they all did solo projects. Um, that was 78. That was three years later, amazingly. That always happens to my songs. <laughs> they always come out three or four, five years after I've recorded them. Yeah. And, and when was the first you heard of it? I mean, did, did, it, did you just kind of turn it on? or did I you, we... New, I was in New York and I was at April Music Publishing. It's funny, no one's ever asked me this before. I remember being there. A guy called George, I'm trying to think of his second name. An older man, it was to me then. Uh, he, he said, uh, you know Ace Freely's recorded New York River? I said, yeah, I know, I know, I know. They said, why didn't you do it? I said, because I wrote it for a a young band that my brother found, and it was a hit. That was a hit in uh, a big hit in Germany and a hit here in England, um, obviously in Scotland as well. Um, yeah, that's that's when I first heard about it, actually. Wow, interesting stuff. Um, just going back to to Roger Daltrey then, because obviously you worked with him. You worked on his first couple of albums, and this is this is kind of the who at the height of their fame because you worked on his album in seventy two and seventy five. And and just to put that into context, you've got uh, who's next from seventy one. Quadrophenia was seventy three. Who by numbers seventy five. I mean, these are all iconic albums that came out around this time. So this is yeah, Daltrey yeah. at his peak. So again, prime time Daltrey. How did you get involved with him for his solo stuff? Well, I, I knew Roger in the same way as I knew Rod because they'd show up for we did gigs together and stuff. In um, I used to walk into their dressing room. Roger would suddenly <laughs> walk into our house and we'd talk, uh, and uh, that was nice. So we were sort of friendly, and then he became friendly with Adam Faith as well. Yeah. And it, he uh, he became very friendly with Adam Faith, and he asked Adam Faith if he'd like to sort of like get involved with producing his first his first album, his first solo album, which had giving it all away on there, you know. And so Adam Faith recruited me. We recorded it at Roger's house. We went there first of all to actually do Leo's album. Yes. Adam Faith. Adam Leo Faith Sayer, yeah. Yeah, Leo Sayer. Adam Faith and Dave Courtney, they were friends. Dave Courtney found the singer called Leo Sayer. Adam Faith got in touch with me and said, you know, would you play on this um, on this album for Leo? I'd never heard of Leo. I'd obviously never seen him then. And, um, yeah, we did it at, at Leo, at Roger's house. Um, and I think we recorded about 10 songs. Might have been more, you know. And I remember Leo and uh, Dave Courtney, because Dave played the piano. I remember Leo and Dave playing some more songs to Roger. And I said, well, I could record those. Or I could record those, you know. And one of the songs was giving it all away. So straight after Leo's album, we made Roger's album there as well. Um, but uh, I played banjo on the show Must Go On, which is a bit, bit strange. I suggested we put a banjo on it because it just sounded like a George Formby song to me. <laughs> I thought if you put another voice on there, it could be ding, jiggy, ding, jiggy, ding, jiggy, <laughs> jiggy, jiggy, jiggy. <laughs> sounded like a, a kind of a, a musical thing, you know. And he was a bit of a Charlie Chaplin figure. He was a bit of a comic, a bit of a clown, you know. Um, and so, you know, we were all friends. We're still friends together now. I spoke to Leo only last year. We had a long, a long chat. That's good to hear. That's good yeah. to hear. 
And obviously your connection with, with Roger lasted uh, a lot of time and, and you went out on the road with him again, didn't you? In uh, was it 75 when you toured America? In 85. 85, sorry, yeah, 85, yeah. 85, yeah, 85. We toured America. We did all, I did all the, he said to me, phone me, he said, Russ, I want to go on the road because I'd written a, another song on his, uh, under, under, under uh, a Raging Moon. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a song on that album as well. Um, and Roger phoned. He said, I want to go on the road. He said, I've been offered a tour of the East Coast of America. He said, I, I really want to do it. Would you do it with me? He said, you know, you do it. Play guitar on it. Play lead guitar and uh, and sing songs yourself. He said, take the heat off of me. Do a couple yourself, you know, which is what I did. And uh, that was good fun. Fantastic stuff. Um, and just talking about playing guitar there, um, you famously had a, was it a Fender Strat that you had holes uh, drilled into? Um, what's the story behind that guitar? Well, I had a, uh, that was 1960, that was a 65 Stratocaster and it was black and it was owned by the rhythm guitar player in the Unit 4 Plus 2. And, uh, he wanted to sell it, and he asked me one day if I wanted to buy this guitar from him. He said, you, he's, I don't know whether he was he'd bought a new one or something or another guitar. He obviously bought another guitar, but he wanted to sell this one. So I said, how much do you want for it? I'll have it. And I thought, they all look exactly the same. I, you know, I think they're beautiful-looking guitars, but they're all identical. But I, I like some a different-looking guitar. So this was 1960. This was 1968. It might have been early 69, but it's around about that time. And uh, I asked my friend, Jim Wilkinson, who was going to the Royal, Royal College of Art in London. He was a good designer, you know, and I said, could you put, put some holes in this guitar? You know, like those chairs. They used to be in the 60s and 70s. There was a thing for aluminium shears that had holes in them it made them very light but you could stack them up and carry them around but i thought god it'd be really light around my neck as well you know so uh my friend jim i said do what you like just cut holes in it you know actually i did a tv show with roger at shepperton we were at shepperton studios and he looked at that and i said i love that guitar and he took he took a, a Gibson Les Paul out of a guitar case, his guitar case, and he said to the chippy there in the in the, uh, in the studio at Shepparton, he said, can you cut holes in this <laughs> like that? The so there, there is a Roger Daltrey guitar around that's got holes cut in it. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic, fantastic stuff. Um, and just moving on then next to, to, to Rainbow, I mean, you obviously had um, a number of your songs recorded by Richie Blackmore and company and all became big hits. And we'll start with um, Since You've Been Gone. I mean, you first recorded that in 76. And as you said, a couple of moments ago, it took a few years for someone else to do it. It became a big hit as well. But um, yeah. how did how did that one come about? I mean, when did you first hear that Rainbow were going to take up that song? Well, I heard, first of all, it was a hit in America by a band called Head East. They recorded it much more like my version. My version was, I wanted it to be quieter and go into more power when it got to the, when it got to the chorus. But um, it was recorded by Head East. They re recorded it and it got to 
for a heavy song, it did pretty well in America. It got to about 40, something like that. But they they supported Rainbow on the tour of America. Okay. So I think that's where, I don't know, I've not asked Richie, but I think that's probably where they heard it, I think, there. And they uh, thought this would be good for us. And it was. Very good, yeah. very good. And Sherry Curry had a version as well, which did well in America. And uh, so, so in terms of the, the Rainbow version itself, I mean, when did you get to hear it? Did you get to hear it before it was released? And, and what was your what was your thoughts on their version? I don't remember hearing it before it was released. I remember hearing it on the radio and thinking it sounded really good, really strong. You know, Graham's got a very strong voice. Uh, and I knew somebody told me they'd been to uh, Sweet Silence, a studio in Copenhagen, and put it down and i was very impressed with the sound very impressed with uh you know the actual performance with that cozy power on the drums as well you know it's really powerful <laughs> absolutely and the legacy yeah. of that song is just incredible as well isn't it it's still being used in in popular culture today so how do you feel when you turn on the tv or go to the cinema or you open something on your phone and, and there it is playing yeah. Well, I love the version that's in um, Guardians of the Galaxy. It's amazing, you know. And you realize I'd listened to it. I thought, what are they doing with this song? You realize that the, the actual meter of the song, as it goes down in steps, it's half the time. The, the words stay the same, but it goes down half the time as all previous recordings. It says, dun, 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 dun. It goes, dun. I get the same old dream, down the same time every night, down. <laughs> so it's got half as many chords, but it works so well, you know. Well, songs, you know, when they become popular, certain songs take on a life of their own, don't they? They become something new, something different. You, you don't think of it when you're, you know, when you're, when you're writing and you don't know where it's going to go. Absolutely. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And um, then along came I Surrender and another big hit for Rainbow and another one of your songs. I mean, was that something that Richie reached out to you or Rainbow reached out to you or was it just a coincidence? I was just going into the studio, Paul. I was just doing songs going in there. I'd get, I had a great deal with Island Music. I had a great deal because part of the contract, because I was getting success, they were allowing me to sort of... Uh, get whatever I wanted. They they would hire the studio for me to go and do three songs. Wow. And I'd do three songs. And um, but I'd always go in with three songs. And I would say to them, I want a Marshall 200 head. Uh, I want just, I only need one, uh, one cabinet, four, you know, four, uh, four speakers, basically. Um, and um, sometimes I needed a, a drum kit. Sometimes I needed uh, all sorts of instruments, you know. Um, so I had a great deal with them, and they paid for everything. Um, so that was good. Um, what was the question? Again? <laughs> it was more just to how did uh, Rainbow come to to record that one? I mean, obviously, was it was oh, it yeah, written for yeah. them, or was it organic, or? No, no, yeah, I had to, so that was one of the songs, and one of the three songs at that time that I had. I went into the studio, and uh, I thought I'd like to hear my friend John Verity singing, sing it, and he sang, he sang the thing. I sort of like, I sort of uh, arranged it, I arranged it with Bob, Bob played drums on it, 
Dave Winter played bass on it. I think John might have played guitar on it. I don't know if I played guitar on it, but I sort of set the thing up and John sang it, sang it really well, gave it to Ireland. And I think they must have sent it to Rainbow. Rainbow were looking for songs because I know at the same time I'd written another song. It had a girl's name in it. This is what I was told. I didn't ask Richie this, but I would ask him if I saw him now. Um, it had a girl's name and he separately said, I don't want to do a song with a girl's name in it. So I nearly had two there, but it was a very strong song. It was called Madeleine. Ah. Like a very French chorus. Oh, Madeleine, what am I going to do without your love? <laughs> it was one of those kind of things, you know. So did you have conversations with Richie Blackmore about these songs at the time, before, after? No, I, I, I spoke to Richie about five years ago when they came to the O2, five or six years ago, five or six years ago. They came to the O2 to play. I mean, they sold out the O2. It was amazing. Uh, I got there and they were on stage just doing a sound, uh, not doing a sound, well, you know, just arranging songs and things on the stage. I sat a long way down the auditorium, so they didn't know I was there anyway. <laughs> And I've just sat in the stalls listening to it, you know. I was with a friend who said to me, uh, after about an hour of listening to the stuff, he said to me, he said, don't you think you ought to go and make yourself that scene? So I walked on the stage, you know, it's lovely. And uh, I'd never knew Richie before that. You know, everyone said, they can't believe that you did. Well, I knew of him before. Because he was in a band, he was in a band in, in the 60s that used to back Screaming Lord Such. He was also a, like a session player at Joe Meek Studio in London. Uh, and he played also played in uh, with Chaz Hodges, Billy Kai, Bobby Graham uh, in the Stormers. Well, the Stormers and the Outlaws asked me to be in their band before Richie. <laughs> and I turned it down because I was in a band with all my friends, you know, my really good friends. But they wanted me to be in the band. And uh, Richie ended up being the guitar player in the band. So I have stood on the stage and we had a really good chat about things, but uh, sort of superficial things, really, you know, nothing, nothing important. But, um, you, know, good, you know, a good chat. It was nice to speak to him. Oh, so it's fascinating because obviously the likes of Since You've Been Gone and I Surrender are huge hits for the band commercially, the biggest they got here in the UK. So I always wondered if yeah. there was a, another link between the two of you and whether he, he ever tapped you up again in future and asked for, for anything else going forward. Well, I did say to him before, he was waiting to go on the stage and I was chatting to him behind the stage, waiting to go through the, uh, basically through the curtains, on to walk on the stage at the back. And... Uh, and he said to a guy that we were with, he said, you know, he said, I have to do this, go on the road now. The, you know, the way to get these kind of audiences, what he meant was big audiences, the way to get big audiences, I have to go on the road and play, play and play for months and years, years really. Or you've got to get a song from this man. <laughs> that was me, uh, which was really nice. And um so he said, if you can get a song from this man, then it's that that kind of stuff. So when we were on our own again, and he said, uh, 
something. I said, well, do you want, do you want another song? Because now he's in a band called Blackmore's Night, which is like medieval, you know. And uh, I said, do you want another song then? And he went, okay. And I said, what, do you want rock or do you want medieval? And he, he said, he sort of had a smile and he went, medieval. So I never wrote oh, it. Right. I could write it. <laughs> I, could, I could write it, but I didn't know how serious he was. I thought, I'm not going to write this if, if uh, he wants to. Funnily enough, Ronnie Romero, his singer now, was there that night. And he's just been in touch with me last week and the week before. Uh, and he wants a song. He wants a song for his album. He's touring the world at the moment with his band. But, uh, yeah, so he would obviously – I'm looking forward to meeting him because he left stories about Richie and what they're doing now, what they're up to, whatever. But um, it's just nice to write, Paul, really. Yeah. It's just good. You know, they say you are what you repeatedly do. So if you stop doing it, you lose it. You know? Indeed. And when you speak about writing with, with, for, for Ronnie, do you write for him or do you, do you write with him in this occasion? Well, he said to me, "I just like a song from you." He said, "But uh, if I, if you know, if you have time, and I could come over and maybe write a song with you," and I said, "Yeah, yeah, you know, I've I've got other friends. I've got a friend here today that could write him a good song as well." Roly Jones, very good writer. So I mean, he might end up writing with us as well because oh, we're writing together. Fabulous stuff, fabulous stuff. And just a quick question about uh, all these songs that you, you've written for other people and they've, they've turned their uh, versions of them into hits and things like that. When I know that you're still performing and still playing now and you've got a, a tour to come in Germany and things like that soon, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, but in terms of you playing these songs, do you play them as your arrangements, your original arrangements, or do you do it as the versions that became hits, or do you do a mix? They're kind of a mix, you know. It's a funny thing when you have... Uh... I didn't work, you know, once once I finished with Argent, I had a child and then uh, I didn't I didn't go on the road and I just wanted to see my children sort of develop, you know. And so I didn't go on the road for nine years, but I could sit at home and write songs. I really missed being on the road. I really did miss it. But, you know, it allowed me to, to see the kids grow because you never get that back again, you know. The kids sort of like developing, you know. I used to go to America and for two weeks come back and they'd grown, you know, and I thought, I can't do this, but I could stay at home and write songs, which I think is the right thing to do because uh, I've had a good career and I'm there, I'm, I'm doing it. It's the opposite, opposite of what I thought I would be doing. I thought I would, uh, you know, I would sort of be on the road, touring the world, playing live, playing live, playing live, and it sort of uh, when I get into my 70s, I could write songs, <laughs> you know, but uh, it's uh, I work the other way around, you know. So I mean, I'm still writing. I write every day. I go in there and I I do something, you know. Yeah. I've been writing with the band called Space Elevator as well. They're good. They're really good. And uh, a band. Have you heard of Fugitive? No, I don't think I have. No. They're a good. They're a good band. I've been doing some things with them as well. They're good. I have to check. Uh, they come from Liverpool. Um, so they're all younger, so I've made some great friends that are younger than me. And um, but you know the music, you know, it, it uh, 
it stops us. It, it, we have something in common, you know. The music, there's no generation gap. You know, we talk the same language because we're writing, you know, we're writing towards the same ends. Absolutely. And um, you, you mentioned the, the, the kind of the gap where you stayed at home and, and you, you looked after your children and you saw them grow. And that's that's fantastic. But in the 80s, you'd written some big songs for the likes of Santana and America and members of ABBA and Uriah Heep had used your songs and Elkie Brooks and so many others as well. But you had a resurgence, didn't you, in the 80s on yourself and you were back in the, the spotlight and in front of the microphone and things like that with... with yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I produced, I wrote and produced You Can Do Magic for America. Um, I got a call from their record label who said that, you know, they wanted, uh, basically their contract was coming to an end and would I write a song that might be a single for them, you know, and I I wrote a couple of tunes and they recorded both of them and my song was chosen as the uh, single and it got, got to number one in the adult contemporary chart and it got to top 10 in uh, in the pop chart in Billboard. So, I mean, um, it, it, it did really well. Um, yeah, yeah, they're still great friends. Uh, Santana was, uh, that was a song that I had on here, <laughs> since you've been on album. Yeah. Um, that was winning, that was called Winning. Then I wrote another one for them called um, Nowhere to Run. Um, yeah. I've had a great career. I can't complain. Absolutely. Brilliant career. Um, but just in terms of your own kind of resurgence then in, in the 80s, because you came back and... Oh, yeah, you're talking about that. Yeah, yeah so, yeah, so yeah. like the, the single Voices, I mean, I've always loved that song. It's always got a it's got a great groove to it. It's got a, a subtle driving beat and a really catchy kind of hooky chorus as well. I mean, just, just talk us yeah. through that song. What, what was the inspiration behind that one? It, it was an amazing... It, it, it was like a lyric I'd never written before. It was right out of... I don't know how it happened, but I wanted to tap into that more, you know. I had a phone call from Brian Adams when that was out. It was played to death in America. Yeah. But Brian said... Uh, he said, I want to meet you. I want to chat to you about maybe doing something together, you know. And we ended up Abbey Road. He was staying at the Montcalm Hotel. And... Um, he said, I love voices. He's told me over the phone he loved it. He said, I love it. He said, it's so introspective, which is a word I don't use, but I thought, yeah, he's right. Um, and he said, would you write something? He said, I've just recorded a song with Tina Turner, which was It's Only Love uh, duet. And he said, I'd love you to write something, something for Tina. I was already asked to write something for Tina by Roger Davis, her manager, and he introduced me to her. Uh, do you know, I didn't write anything because I thought I did write something actually, but uh, I did write something, but um, I thought it won't be recorded because everyone's going to sort of present songs for her. Uh, Brian, I said to Brian, do you want to write, write it together? He said, no, I want you to write it. I, he said, I'm going on tour. If you write it, I can produce it, you know. Then I spoke to the head of the record company who said he's not going to be producing it. He thinks he's going to be producing it. This is what I heard. This is what I heard. Whether it was true or not, that's what I heard. And did that come off? Did it, was it a big single? No, 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 no. No, we didn't do it. We didn't do the single in the end. We didn't do it. But, I mean, that sort of thing would have been good for her. That kind of, it was quite dark. And um, But I wrote it for this um, EMI, EMI America album 
because the head of the record company wanted me, you know, asked me if I would do an album, do an album for EMI America, because I'd just done the America album. And, um, yeah, it, uh, it was used on Miami Vice. That was used, yeah. and it was used, used a lot. Funnily enough, Ronnie Romero is going to, on his album, <laughs> I didn't realise, he wrote to me, he said, I've done your song on my album. And I listened to it a couple of days ago. It's good. It's really good. It's done more, more of a, more rocky. We're more like that on the stage. You know, we're much more like that, more yeah. sort of weighty on the stage. So how did it feel right. at the time then, obviously, because you'd had a, a huge amount of success as a songwriter, but being back in the in the spotlight yourself as Russ Ballard, as, as the guy whose song is, is being played on the radio and, be, as you said, played to death in America, it got used an awful lot, didn't it? So how did it feel being back in the spotlight and under your own kind of esteem then? It's, do you know what's so great? It's so great going to a place like you go to Belgium or a place like Sweden or a place like Germany and they haven't forgotten you, you know, and it is so wonderful. And, the, you know, what th people, things are saying, it's just amazing. And you think, say, tend to say to yourself, why did I ever not do this full time? But it's madness. But uh, it's more important to see my kids grow. Uh, now they've grown, obviously. And uh, it's important to keep writing. You know, while you're writing, you're doing the thing you love. You know, and it's a passion. And I've said before, and I will say it to you, Paul, when you find a passion, many people don't find a passion in their lives, you know. It takes you over. You, you get that feeling. You wake up every day looking to what you're going to do, looking forward to what you're going to do. And the world makes sense. <laughs> Instead of doing a job you hate that you that you settle for, you settle for a job to pay the mortgage. So when you you write music, you record music, there's moments of bliss. And I walk in to have lunch every day, and there's been moments in that morning that blissful, you know. And I say, you know, the kids' education has to be, first of all, before anything else, everyone has to find a passion and follow it, follow it so they do, they don't waste their lives. They, do a job they love and it's called a passion yeah very wise words very wise words indeed yeah it's uh it's a different world certainly is it certainly is and speaking of of, of spotlight as we, we mentioned you're still just as big across europe and in the next couple of months you're going back to germany you've got a tour across there as yeah. well haven't you yeah yeah so rock meets classic it's with an orchestra. I've never done it oh, before, wow. so it's going to be—it's new to me, you know. And uh, oh, it's great! Bring it on, because it's—it's—you know—it's all music, and it's uh, there's a rhythm section in the orchestra, but it's like a fifty-five-piece orchestra. <laughs> uh, Mitch Ewer's doing it. Oh, nice! There's a couple of guys from Super Tramp on the show. Um, Robert Hart from Manfred Man sings in the Manfred Man band is doing it. We all get like four or five songs each. And then I think we do one or two each as well, you know, kind of together. So, uh, that, you know, many of these guys are my friends. So I look forward to doing it, you know. Fantastic stuff. And you, last year you, you, you had a good tour of the, the UK as well. So are you going to have any more dates in across the UK this year? Well, I hope so. I think, I think the uh, promoters coming up with dates, you know, I've got a great band. I've got the best band I've ever had. 
and uh, um, you know, it takes five or six gigs to really settle down and to sort of feel comfortable because you rehearse, you can rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. It's not, it's like a footballer becoming match fit, you know. Yeah. You need five or six gigs to get that sort of uh, become that machine and it gels and it's the reviews were great and um, it's just magic. I'm meeting, you know, again, you know, you do these shows. There's younger people there. They come and they chat to you, and you're making new friends. Uh, so what a life! What a life indeed. It's it's not a difficult one sometimes. Um, well, Russ, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you and hearing all your stories and uh, wonderful career you've had and incredible names you've you've brushed paths with and things like that. So, what's the best way for, for everyone to keep in touch with what you're doing? But if you want to get in touch. Uh, with uh, you can get to the rustballardmusic.com uh and you would be uh you would speak to my friend sven that goes into germany actually and he keeps me he keeps me updated on everybody you know or you can go on facebook russ ballard perfect well it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you russ as i said and uh, best of luck for everything thank you for, for joining us take care god bless excellent so there you go, the amazing Russ Ballard there. I put a few clips of the interview on YouTube last week and the amount of people that replied saying they didn't realise all the songs he'd written and they didn't realise he was the man behind the rainbow hits and some of the backstories behind these massive hits and that sort of stuff. It's great to get to hear them right from Russ how they all came about. Anyway, that's it for this week's podcast then. Thank you so much for listening as always. Make sure you check out VRP Rocks Radio. Give it a try. You're not going to regret it. Some brilliant music from the 60s, 70s and 80s that you, you don't get to hear on Classic Rock Radio usually. And of course, make sure you subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app so you get all future episodes released every Monday with big name classic rock stars. Please leave a five-star review as well on that podcast app that you use. It makes a really big difference. And you can check out the VRP Rocks YouTube channel and social media channels as well. But that's it until next week's episode. So until then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.